Hello and welcome to the Nakatomi Breakroom. I'm your host, Christian Seal. I'm joined by my co-host, Xander Massey. Hello. And Blake Bauman. Yo. And we are three working stiffs in the film industry who love movies. I work in visual effects. Xander has a background in film finance and distribution. And Blake works in feature animation. Here we talk about the art, business, and culture of cinema. Let's let's start with Jackie Brown. Good I don't actually want to start with this movie, but I feel like we should because it's the bigger movie. And also, Coffee is fucking awesome. I forgot how good that movie it's was. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the soundtrack, which we can like get into, but... I, yeah. I own that soundtrack on vinyl and it's just so good. Oh what oh dude. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I put it I play it pretty often. We need a sidebar about that later. It, you would expect Foxy like the, them to use Fox the Foxy Brown soundtrack more, but they use the coffee soundtrack more. Yeah. No, that was one of the things I was gonna bring up is did you guys notice that the music from Coffee is all over Jackie Brown? Yeah. Oh yeah. wait, yeah, you're totally right. Let me just preface: I had not seen either, so this was kind of a treat. Jackie Brown has been on my list for a while. I've always wanted to watch it. I feel like Pam Greer is just amazing in this movie, and then it's interesting to see that, and then seeing the old movie. I feel like the way to watch it is probably to go coffee and then Jackie Brown. What do you guys think? Is there like an order here, a Pam Greer order? That's how I did it. And I think that it, I mean, like it is always fun to go backwards and be like, oh, that's where he got that from. But it was looking for things from coffee in Jackie Brown. So it was yeah. nice to do it that way. Agreed. Yeah, I was kind of hoping he would make some kind of subtle nod back to something in the characters of either Foxy Brown or coffee. Like this is the character 30 years later. Like, you know how they kind of do that with movies oh, yeah. like The Rock, where Sean Connery plays a very James Bond-esque character. This is kind of like playing out the scenario of if James Bond had been captured. I love with- The Rock. I've seen that movie probably 15 times, and I've never thought that he was old James Bond. Well, That's the movie awesome. doesn't actually acknowledge it. Yeah, there's there's one line where she's talking to, uh, what's his name, the, the Bell Bonds Max Cherry. Max Cherry. And Max Cherry. And he says, I bet you look the same. You just had an Afro back in the 70s or whatever. And oh, she yeah. says, and she, she says, I had an Afro exactly and a skinny the ass. same. Yeah. Yeah. She does look exactly the same, by the way. All right. So Jackie Brown, the titular character, she's a flight attendant, gets busted by the feds, carrying money and drugs from Mexico. Her employer, played by the venerated Samuel L. Jackson, bails her out and shortly after unsuccessfully attempts to murder her. So... Did you guys actually count how many Kango hats he has? <laughs> no. I, does it change you, quite a bit? Dude, I know he's, he's wearing, wearing a different Kango hat in every scene of the movie. <laughs> I mean, that obviously upped the quality of the overall film, let's be honest. When I worked at America's Funniest Home Videos, we had an intern that wore a different beret every day, and we all thought she was super weird. But for some reason, Samuel Jackson can pull it off. <laughs> you know what? Respect. He really can. <laughs> he definitely can pull it off. And a ponytail. A long ponytail. <laughs> a long ponytail. Yeah. Arguably, he pulled that off less. <laughs> yeah. Wait, are you, are you talking about the one coming off his chin or the back of his head? Yeah. Ooh, true. There's a little competition there. Which one? <laughs> I remember watching that movie in college, and, and Samuel L. Jackson was all about the fact that he brought a lot of these things to the part. All right. Yeah. So Jackie Brown is an adaptation of the Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch. I do love... The more noteworthy Elmore Leonard adaptations, like Get Shorty, Out of Sight was another one, which also features Ray Nicolette, played by Michael Keaton, directed by Soderbergh. Yeah, right. There's another one that's on Netflix right now. It's called Life of Crime. I randomly watched it a couple months ago, 
Have you guys heard of this? It's with no, it's it got good? an amazing cast. It's like Tim Robbins, Jennifer Aniston, but it has a lot of the same characters. So the character of Ordell Roby is played by Most Deaf. And oh, the character of Melanie, the Bridget Fonda character from Jackie Brown, is played by Isla Fisher. It's an interesting movie. It's kind of like there's a Schrader script from the mid-70s directed by... Actually, I have no idea who directed it, but it, it's called The Yakuza, and it stars Robert Mitchum. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a gritty crime movie-like. It's very Taxi Driver-like, but very different direction. And you can kind of see how a, a different director mm-hmm. takes it in a, a weird direction, makes it kind of a misfire. But I would definitely recommend Life of Crime. Yeah, Schrader movies can really can get weird very quickly. Did you guys see The Card Counter? Nah. Yes. I enjoyed it. I feel like that's not usually like my cup of tea, but... <laughs> oh, I liked it a lot. Kate hated it. <laughs> You're waiting for me to be, uh, have like a rousing review and... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for you to be like, yeah, I didn't like it. So I can be like, fuck you, Blake. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen Jackie Brown. I I must have seen this movie half a dozen times. And I love this movie. It's a good Tarantino movie. Which is quite the compliment coming from you, by the way. Yeah, well, okay. All right, let's let's get into it. (laughs) Yes, actually. What is what is Christian's beef with Tarantino? Because I would imagine there's a, a decent amount. No, I, I love Tarantino. I think he's a national treasure of cinema. Um, I do think, you know, every movie has just been a blank check, carte blanche, do whatever you want. You know, we'll green light any script. We'll make whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's like every artist's dream, right? So if you follow that dream too long, it eventually becomes a nightmare. And that is The Hateful Eight. Absolutely. It could have been so much better if yeah. there was just some kind of collaborative process, which is the filmmaking process. You need somebody to just be like, hey, man, this isn't really that strong. Like, I think we can do better. Yeah, I like I like to blame producers for making movies too commercial and ruining them. But sometimes you I can go in the other the direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, that movie really needed a producer. Imagine you're like you're a director, right? You're going into a pitch meeting. You show up at a studio with a 240 page script, half of which is just gibberish. That's never going to get made. You're going to get <laughs> laughed out of the building and it all takes place I, in one room. I mean, like it all is supposed to come to a head and it does, but it's not even that rewarding at the end. And you want there to be like uh, some, you know, form follows function where, where like they choose to do it in one house, but in 70 millimeter to make some sort of purpose. I mean, like, I, I think there's an argument you could make to say like that by making it 70 millimeter, he created something that was more engaging, but I, I just don't really see the, why that makes sense. To the 70 millimeter thing. I totally get it. If somebody offered me an opportunity to shoot something on 70 millimeter, I'd be like, hell yeah, I would never turn that down. That's amazing. Like, and He's not doing it because he thinks he's David Lean. He's not trying to make Lawrence of Arabia. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean there, there are directors who can do everything themselves. They can write, produce, direct, have, have their hand on every single detail and everything. <laughs> it's funny, Blake said Macquarie. I was going to say, like, these are people like Akira Kurosawa or Orson Welles. <laughs> you know, just like, nope. you know, some of the most Tom talented Cruise, people baby. in all of history. But (laughs) well, then how do you guys feel about other directors doing the exact same thing? In the case of Hateful Eight, Tarantino just went just like 
too hard. Would Nolan be another example with Tenant? They gave him the reins. You guys have seen that movie. That movie is also a mess. But then I also think that there's some people that when they're given full reign, they can really just boost the film. I think specifically, I think about... McCory and Cruz, like they make the hell out of that movie. And and Tarantino did get full reign for so many movies that were fantastic. I don't think of Nolan as a indulgent director. I mean, we're talking about Nicholas Winding Refn, who is incredibly indulgent, but yeah. like I love Refn and I will defend him. I will take my proverbial glove off and slap you across the face if you try to say anything bad about Refn. Uh, But he is incredibly indulgent and the Neon Demon was not a good movie. We're getting off topic, but Refn, you know, will go like full nonsense. Is it Bronson one of his movies? Yeah, but Bronson is fucking great. It's great, but it also is nonsense. It it is nonsense, but it's a wild ride. Yeah. And maybe that's the difference. If as long as it's a wild ride, I'm on board for (laughs) it. I would check out the original Pusher. It's quite good. It's very non Refn. It's just it's like a gritty 90s crime movie. So I don't know. I think of like Tarantino's career as kind of like phases where, you know, he has his movies from the early 90s, like breakout hit of Reservoir Dogs, Mm -hmm. which was kind of an unofficial remake of the Hong Kong movie, the Ringo Lamb movie, City on Fire. And then, you know, Pulp Fiction, which he co-wrote with Roger Avery. You can throw True Romance in there also. Well, I, I wasn't really counting those or, you know, like, um, natural born killers. Right. And obviously he's not a director. You know, you could also throw in hunt for the red October and that cause he punched up dialogue for hunt for the red October. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It well, It pops up on Netflix every once in a while. Check it out because there's just scenes where like all of a sudden they're talking about like the fantastic four or just some random like sixties pop culture on a submarine in a movie about nuclear war with Russia. <laughs> You know, moving through Tarantino's career, Pulp Fiction changed movies for like a decade, basically. Changed crime movies completely. To end the 90s, you have Jackie Brown, which is another crime drama, but it's a lot more polished, a lot smoother. And I would argue just more, you know, more mature as a film than the other two. Yeah, so the early 2000s were kind of a mixed bag where you have this kind of comic booky, glossy Hollywood movie of Kill Bill and, and mm-hmm. then the grindhouse throwback that he did with robert rodriguez death proof and planet Planet terror Terror. and death proof is widely considered his worst movie by a lot of people which i would not agree with (laughs) which i actually love that movie the two i would argue that you hear the least about is death proof and jackie brown and it's Mm -hmm. odd because so many people have jackie brown as like on a quality bar, like one of his best films. Well, he's like, he's so famous for the, this like auteur signature that he's developed over time. And that one fits the auteur the least, like almost too much of his inspiration put into one movie. And there's not enough Tarantino in there. You still have like a scene where a guy touches a woman's foot. But besides that, it doesn't feel like super Tarantino. It just seems like a love letter. That's interesting because I think of Death Proof as like the movie he really did for him. And it was not like the the crowd pleaser type of movie that, you know, his other ones have been. I, it's like, I want to make a movie that is like a movie that I went to see when I was like 10 years old in, in like a dirty theater. The pacing is a little funky. Yeah. And the acting is, you know, spotty. And there's some like technical problems with it. Like there's some harsh cuts. It's exactly that. Like, I, I don't disagree with that at all. But I think that's why it feels less tarantino because he... When he does like a Kill Bill movie, it's a synthesis. It's like he's taking his inspiration and then he's 
you know, using that as a seed to grow his own concept. Okay, so, you know, we have Kill Bill, we have Death Proof, and then we move into this phase of Tarantino where it's more like, you know, there's a fantastic premise in all of these Tarantino movies from like the 2010s up until basically now where, you know, it's like, what if we killed Hitler in a blaze of glory in a movie theater? What if a slave took revenge and, you know, killed everyone or became like a super badass bounty hunter? What if... What if 1960s Hollywood was just a sandbox that we can play in for three and a half hours? It definitely is that. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of loop this back in with Jackie Brown, though, I did appreciate now that we're actually discussing it, the fact that this movie is very like story over style. There wasn't anything super flashy about it. It was just a really interesting story and just like unbelievably interesting characters. I feel like I have read that Tarantino doesn't like this movie. It's like his least favorite of everything he's done. And I think it's because it's... It's an adaptation. It's weird, too, considering that he said multiple times that Coffee is, like, in his top 20, like, movies of all time. Like, he's a major fanboy, I think. Yeah. 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 Oh, of course. I Um, mean, Pam Greer is so magnetic and has, like, captured so many directors' attention. I feel like there's a, a generation of directors that's just in love with her. Well, take it back to Jackie Brown. This movie has no nudity. It has right. a sex scene, which is, like, I think this is the only sex scene in a Tarantino movie. And it's like one of the best sex scenes in any movie that I can think of. She's working for Ordell Roby. He tries to murder her. She outsmarts him. And she teams up with Max Cherry, played by the great Robert Forster. And the two of them hatch a plan that keeps her out of jail, keeps her alive, And ends the movie with her getting the half a million dollars that everybody is after. And she basically does all of this only with her wits. Oh man, she's scary though. It's so great when you reach that, when she reaches that breaking point. I think the full uh, breaking point is when Ordell comes over to kill her. Man, she just flips a switch and she is just so threatening, so powerful. I would never want to mess with anybody like this. It's just crazy (laughs) to see how quickly she can just become this total badass. It's, I love it. I love it. I I can't believe that she said to Ordell, I'm going to tell the cops who you are, tell them everything about your business. And in return, I'll bring you your money. And he was like, yeah, sounds sounds like a good plan to me. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we're talking about it, I actually was kind of thinking that the whole Chris Tucker thing in the beginning was a little unnecessary. But now that I think about it, it's such an awesome comparison to see, you know, how he like basically mafia style murders Chris Tucker and how he's Mm -hmm. so in control the whole time and just smooth and talks him into doing this thing that makes no sense. That is absolutely insane that he drives him to a freeway underpass and guns him down in the trunk of a car, basically Mm -hmm. with Chris Tucker being willing the whole time. And to see him go from that to the Jackie Brown attempted murder, where it just completely goes against him and she takes the upper hand almost immediately. It, it is a good juxtaposition. I need some more Chris Tucker in my life, honestly. Oh, uh, Rush Hour 4 is announced. So there so we go. So you're going to get it. Oh, dear God. Ordell Roby is, his primary goal in this movie is to get his half a million dollars out of Mexico. And... 
half a million dollars in 1997, which is the year this movie was released, was is yeah. worth uh, 866,000 today. Yeah, huh. I'm sorry, okay. but that's just really sad. You just expect for an arms dealer, especially when you're going to these great lengths in order to get your money. We're talking millions of dollars. It's right, just 860 ridiculous. grand. Yeah. The guy owns three homes, doesn't he? He at least owns two. Dude should have held on to his beachfront condo. That thing would be worth twelve million dollars today. <laughs> yeah, he's just not very good. Be like, this is like a lot for him. This is a big deal. Why doesn't he just go to Mexico? I, don't, I mean, I don't even know where he's going from from the moment he gets the money. But if it's in America, he's going to be tracked. That's a good point. He should have just moved to Mexico and <laughs> yeah, go to the. And money. there would be no movie. Now, there's another movie where Jackie Brown has to go to the U.S. and sell his properties for $10 million. <laughs> oh, my God. We need to make that movie. <laughs> well, one other thing I wanted to touch on is just the fact that Jackie Brown was the follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Because Pulp yes. Fiction was such an insane like hit and such a, such a huge change to the film industry as a whole. Like mm. Just a comment on, on the medium. And then you have Jackie Brown, which is like a very tight straightforward movie that's very well done everyone wants him to make pulp fiction too i'm sure whatever happened to the r-rated star trek movie wasn't that on the table for a while oh yeah it's still technically on the table you know that he would want full control and i don't think he's gonna get it in star trek there's no way yeah i I think those days are over and i think that's a good thing yeah yeah i can't believe he got away with once upon a time in hollywood which i do not hate yeah, what about it? Can you not believe? I, for one thing, I feel like there's two movies happening here. I feel like it's everything that I love about Tarantino, which is the Brad Pitt story, which is like, I just want to watch this. Like, this is the good movie here. And then there's everything I hate about Tarantino, which is the Leonardo DiCaprio, which is like every scene is five and a half hours long, completely pointless, and makes me want to stab myself in the eye with a screwdriver. All, all I really want is more Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. And when I saw this movie, I felt like I'm actually getting something that feels a little bit more like those movies in these. But at the same time, there's all these long, boring scenes that that feel like they're really drawing it out. So I, I, I do see your point there. Seeing somebody like Robert De Niro play like secondhand to like a super ultra confident Sam Jackson was like such a treat too. De Niro's amazing to, like, in this too. I love when we see some of these like really big time actors taking some of these really small like sub roles. Not to say that De Niro's role is small. I mean, he's definitely a significant part of the film, but him just not being his classic De Niro self, like he's just so meek and weak. It's so interesting to me. He's a, and then he's a he complete like, bum in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And then he just also flips a switch and then he just, just shoots Melanie in the middle of a mall park parking lot, which that was shocking. I did not expect that either. I loved seeing this for the first time. It was, uh, I was just sitting on my couch being shocked about stuff that has been on the internet and everyone's known for years. <laughs> when we were kids, my brother, my brother used to always say, Lewis. <laughs> just walk around saying that. I was dying, man. I was dying. She's so Lewis. good. I think I saw like Pulp Fiction. I mean, I definitely was too young for Pulp Fiction when it came out. And I think I discovered it in like 2005. I was like, you guys heard about this movie? This movie's pretty good. This is totally off topic, but I saw a Roger Ebert review of Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp and Benicio Love Del that Toro. Movie. And I remember hearing Roger Ebert just like blast this movie, like this movie's terrible. It's like two hours of these grown men just stuffing their bodies with drugs and going on this insane adventure. And so in my mind, I was like, well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and so I made a point of 
of seeking out this movie when it came out on video. I would take it to all my friends' houses and don't let don't let your kids hang out with Christian. He's going to show them fear and loathing <laughs> in Las Vegas. <laughs> no, but the thing is, like everybody loved it. Is it maybe it's something that was very common in the seventies? But am I the only one thought that thought it was so strange that? On Max Cherry's, like, lunch break, he's like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go down to the mall and go see a movie. He it owns just, the company. Like, by himself. I don't know. It just seemed, like, very strange to me. I'm like... So funny that that's your reaction <laughs> right? to that. Because mine was like... I know, I know. This seems great. By the way, I have had jobs where I have done that and gotten away with it, and it feels super weird. <laughs> I was going to say, that would just be so strange to me. Like, it, it is really like weird. Wednesday? Yeah, yeah, it's I really could... weird seeing a movie in a theater on a weekday, and it's really weird doing it when you're supposed to be working. Yes. I... Random notes. Chicks with guns? Was it like a VHS production that he just like bought uh, from some like guns and ammo type store? Yeah, that's I my mean, take. As an arm... As an arms dealer, I feel like that is just the ultimate sell point. There you go. It's like, I mean, it's one of the first scenes of the movie, right? The the scene where she, where it opens on her just standing there seems very reminiscent of Pam Greer, like Coffee and Foxy Brown type movies. I actually started Sheba Baby the other day and it just like is a long, long scene of her just walking in the intro. Did you guys but, wish that the uh, the ending of Jackie Brown was her walking off into on the, the beach? sunset on a beach? <laughs> that might have been a little too on the nose yeah <laughs> if only if only i think one of the most amazing things about this movie is that he cast a 48 year old woman as a lead in a major hollywood movie and yeah. it made a ton of money i mean that's basically unheard of i don't think i can't think of any other movie like that it works and she is the only person that i can imagine doing a role like that yeah like who could he have cast and made this work i feel like nobody um, the character in Rum Punch, her name is Jackie Burke, and she's a white woman. So mm -hmm. he oh. changed it to Jackie Brown, which is an obvious reference to Foxy Brown, and cast Pam Greer. He basically made it something completely different at the same time as more or less being a faithful adaptation is my understanding to the novel. I mean, it's interesting because it actually adds some pre-sale value. This movie's not a sequel in any way, but um, once you tie in these extremely well-regarded and well-known exploitation films, it, you now have some something of a built-in audience for this movie. I, yeah. I, I watched Foxy Brown. I meant to watch Foxy Brown, and I didn't have time, unfortunately, but I have seen it before. I remember seeing Foxy Brown and thinking it was a much more polished movie, but it, it didn't have that like fun, raw energy that coffee did. And that's why I wanted to do coffee instead of Foxy Brown, because it, it also is the movie that uh, was her big breakout. It's, I mean, it's a cleaner movie than coffee. It's, it's extremely similar. You know, it's like when you watch coffee, you just want more of this character. Uh, so you get that. I think with coffee, like there had to be, there had to be more like sex appeal. When you get Foxy Brown, they, you know, there isn't like the, the fight scene where women are ripping each other's clothes off. I can't imagine anybody watched that movie at the time and was like, this is hot. And Xander, have you seen any movies from the seventies? <laughs> this fits right in there. Yeah, is, there is never true. a missed opportunity to forcefully expose a woman's breast. <laughs> so let's talk about coffee. Pam Greer is a nurse working the night shift. Her little sister, Lubell, uh, was using drugs. And it wasn't clear if she got like some tainted drugs or if she just overdosed, which yeah. sets off this massive revenge killing spree by the titular character, Coffee, spelled C-O-F-F-Y. I'm curious because... 
like of the three of us, Blake, this is l- the least in your wheelhouse of something you would yes. normally watch. So I'm kind of curious to to get your take on this. And also, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an interesting film, and it's such a great intro to Pam Greer. Like, I haven't seen, like, any Pam Greer movies. I'm now officially hooked. I mean, the last 20 minutes of her just essentially going from, like, house to house with a massive shotgun, I yeah. was also just dying laughing when <laughs> she just rams into the house full speed. You're just on Pam Greer's shoulders for, like, an hour and a half. That's another thing that I loved about it, too, by the way. You can get so much action there, so much entertainment, and you're in and out in 90 minutes. I respect the short films that can do so much (laughs) in such little time. I respect it. It's great. It's great. It's crazy that a 90-minute movie is now considered a short film. Yeah, and it's a huge bummer, too. So I'm curious. (laughs) Well, Christian, you have such a big history with this film. Were you bringing it around as much as you were with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Because if so, if anybody walked in, would you be like, hey, Christian brought over this movie? You're like, oh, my God, this is shocking. What are you bringing to my home? Like, yeah, no, I I didn't uh, carry around a VHS copy of coffee with me. (laughs) Although I I wish I had. (laughs) I needed coffee when I was 11. I I mean, she must have done other. She must have done like the birdcage movies before that, right? Yeah, so Jack Hill, who directed Coffee, made um, two women in prison movies, I think it was two, and both of them had Pam Greer before this movie came out, and this was the first one she starred in, and it Mm. was a big breakout hit. I I just love that she's avenging first her sister, and then her cop friend, right? That's like, it's it's two revenges. She's basically the Punisher. Yeah, yeah, And and they're like kind of isolated from each other they just both happen to happen in this in this 90 minute movie it's like it's never like she was directly wrong like like they got her sister addicted to drugs and she died and then they beat up her cop friend because he wouldn't take a uh, take a bribe and here is her motivation yeah so with that story point her cop friend who appears to be a genuinely virtuous character in the movie refuses to take on a bribe or refuses to go on the take Shortly thereafter is assaulted by a bunch of goons and they are working for the drug dealer, King George. And she goes undercover as a Jamaican call girl to infiltrate King George's operation. And uh, that leads her up the food chain to the gangster Arturo Vitroni. Which she's supposed to be like this royal, rich Jamaican woman who wants to be a call girl. <laughs> so, so good. So good. Yeah. She she basically just doesn't do a Jamaican accent and then throws Mon on the end of certain events. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> okay, so Coffee frames King George for the crimes that she committed, and he meets a truly horrific end with uh, a noose around his neck being dragged behind a car. I feel like this is a this might be like a 70s movie thing, but it also feels like there's a racial element to this because like there was that famous case in the 90s where that guy was murdered by white supremacists. He got dragged behind a car. There was also a scene in Mississippi Burning, the Alan Parker movie, where uh, they dragged the guy behind the car. Anyway, but no, so. I think the racial I think the racial point is an interesting reading of it because that, that didn't cross my mind. But there are they are white yeah. guys driving the car, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that it is. It just... Um, I know that there there is a scene in that Alan Parker movie, which, by the way, if you guys haven't seen Mississippi Burning, it is phenomenally good yep. and holds yeah, up to this day. Like it is it's tragically very relevant to this day. 
there's the pimp who seems like the villain, but then there's white guys behind him that are actually pulling the strings. Oh, for sure. I mean, behind every villain, there is a, an even more villainous white man. Right, always. right, exactly. That's most of the time that's the true in uh, real life as well. <laughs> yeah. I was talking about real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so unsurprisingly, it is eventually revealed that her boyfriend, who is a city councilman who for some reason takes all of his business meetings in a strip club, is working for Vitroni, the the big bad. And he has the great line, black, brown, yellow, I'm in it for the green. <laughs> yes. Do you guys see the marketing line for this movie? They call her coffee and she'll cream you. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Yikes. What a winner. That yeah, got so some more people in those seats. He, uh, she ultimately guns down her boyfriend. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. she's kind of like, eh, on the fence. <laughs> and it kind of seems like she's going to let him go. And then the half naked white woman pops out and she's like, Oh no, you got to die now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His most unforgivable crime was sleeping with a white woman. Okay. That's fair. I mean, I think it's crazy that she started her career doing these like women in cages movies, like extremely lurid, you know, sex, sexy, like drive-in movies. Jackie Brown being at the other end of it. But I think it's a it's an interesting thing to explore of like, is is coffee a an empowered woman or is this a movie that's meant for like dudes to watch and and be like, I love guns and boobs. I'd say that she fits into what we see today as the anti-hero. She is so easy to root for just because everybody in her world is just so brutal and awful that it's like no of course it's justified just go ahead and like just chain everybody together that's wronged you and then just shoot them with a shotgun <laughs> maybe that's not the best way of going about it but it's vigilantism at the end of the day um sure and i and i will say that in foxy brown they they do ask that question is this is this um she making moral decisions or is she making vengeful decisions i'm wondering you know like is this a positive message culturally for women and feminism the argument is that this is a, a an exploitation movie chock full of gratuitous nudity that she is murderous and she consistently uses sex as a weapon it's interesting to get a woman's perspective from it all and how they almost have more tools than men. Coffee is just so manipulative and like you said, is able to use her sex appeal to her advantage almost like as a second weapon. You have to recognize that this was written by a man and in, in a lot of respects was written for men. A male dominated film industry. Right, right. There's no doubt that Jackie Brown, which target demo is probably like men ages 14 to 30 or something, is still far, far more positive for for women than coffee. But if you also like look at it in relation to the times, I think it's net positive. And I think that if you showed this to an audience today and said, hey, look, look how good this is for for the advancement of, of women, people would tell you to shut the fuck up. But if you look at it in, in the context, I think it's positive. Pam Greer, in a 2001 interview with GQ, was directly asked about coffee, and she said basically that. What, what it ultimately comes down to is that she is depicted as an antihero the way a, a man would be in any other action movie. There are, there are corrupt black characters in this movie, but there are also virtuous black characters in this movie, and it depicts the full gamut it at least puts it on the same level as any other movie. It doesn't become purely an issue of race. And 
uh, on the opposite side of that, to play devil's advocate, at the same time, Pam Greer is a woman caught in a socioeconomic spiral of poverty and drug addiction due to a racist system. And her solution is to murder all of the low and mid-level people who are (laughs) basically part of that same problem. Yeah, right, right. It's a little misguided. One quick note on the topic of feminist crime movies. There are a couple really good ones that I wanted to mention. Um, the first is called Wanda, which was directed by Barbara Loden, who was married to the great director Elia Kazan. Fantastic movie. It's a little hard to find, but um, definitely worth a watch. And the other one is a Rachel Brosnahan movie that came out two years ago called I'm Your Woman. Oh, I remember that coming out. You know, there's like the, the test of... Bechdel test? What is it? Is that what it's called? Where it's uh, can women be on screen with for more than three seconds without talking about men? Yeah. So well, off the top of my head, um, there are female characters is point number one. Point number two is they talk to each other. And point number three is they talk to each other about something other than a man. But this movie mm-hmm. does not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't well, know if Jackie Brown would pass the Bechdel test either. I think she talks to Sharonda. Well, they don't really talk about anything, but I don't think they talk about Ordell. Doesn't she say, how do you know Ordell? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Jackie Brown fails the Bechdel test. (laughs) There are so many like little artifacts of the era that you just forget about that are so fun to watch. But one of the more noteworthy ones was a, a full shot of Sid Haig sitting in a chair by the pool wearing like red briefs and his (laughs) body is covered in hair. Just that amount of body hair on screen is totally unheard of unless it's like a werewolf movie isn't he the judge in jackie brown sid haig is the judge in jackie brown yes yeah he's the one who she stabs in the neck at the end with like the sharpened paper clip what are you guys watching lately barry just keeps on getting better bill Hader is just the best his acting is top notch the writing is so interesting you have like fan favorites like noho hank which is just it's unbelievable writing it does have the great idea of he's just like cosmically destined toward violence and having to murder people despite how much he tries to get out of it the universe just won't let him yeah so i, I just rewatched uh, silent night deadly night and that movie is so much more fucked up than i remember and <laughs> really good. That's it's like a Christmas horror movie. Yeah, it's um, early seventies Christmas horror. The main, actually, I'm I'm not going to go too much into it, but it's uh, yeah, it's a Christmas horror seventies kind of a classic. You know, it's up there with like Black Christmas. What I got is um, Atlanta, like Atlanta all day. It's just the the best show on TV. Very pro Barry as well, but I would say it gives it a run for its money. Thank you for listening. This has been the Nakatomi Break Room. I am Christian Seal, joined by Xander Massey, Blake Bauman. And the three of us would like to say, here's to swimming with bow-legged women. <laughs>